gentlemen, good evening and welcome to a very special evening here in the Brooklyn's Hall. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Steve Clark and I have the honour and pleasure of organising a series of talks. First of all, thank you for supporting both the Henry Surtees Foundation and the Brooklyn's Museum Trust. Many of you will know that this evening has been a year in the making, so I won't delay procedures any longer. Other than to say an added uh, part of the agenda tonight, we have an auction um, and one of our members, Jim Dakin, an XTT rider, has donated a set of Italian hand-painted plates uh, to commemorate John's World Championship in two wheels and four wheels. Uh, we're going to auction the plates um, after the Q&A session we have an auctioneer with us tonight. All the proceeds will go directly into the foundation. So I'm very honoured that uh, Jim has donated these plates. Thank you, sir. So enough of me. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Simon Taylor and John Surtees. gentlemen, I've been lucky enough to make my hobby also my work for the last 50 years. And working in motor racing, I've met a lot of extraordinary people. But this man, it's a hard, it's an overworked word, unique. But this man is unique. We all know that he's the only man in history to have won the World Championship <coughs> on two wheels and on four. But if you delve behind that remarkable fact, you find some really astonishing statistics. For this is a man who in his life has had three careers. First, as a motorcycle racer. Right from his first race at 16, he was beating the established stars. He was 500cc world champion for the first time when he was 22 years old. And he went on to win six more world championship titles. And he won the Isle of Man Senior TT four times. Second career, as a racing driver, he became world champion for, for, for Ferrari in 1964. He won the first Can-Am series, and he brought Honda into Formula One, winning them a crucial first ever Grand Prix victory. So that's the second career. Then there's a third career, as a Formula One team boss and as a racing car manufacturer. He built his own Surtees cars, Formula One, Formula 5000, and Formula Two, and he employed drivers like Mike Haywood, Derek Bell, Jochen Mass, Tim Schenker, Vittorio Brambilla. In fact, I just totted up how many Surtees cars were built during the 1970s, and it was something like 100 single seaters. And John's just reminded me that he did all of that on 37 staff. That's right. Well, John, we could talk to you for days, for weeks, for months about your extraordinary life. All we can do this evening is paint a brief overall picture of just some of your achievements. I'm going to start off asking you some questions, and then, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to throw the floor open to you so that you can ask your questions of John. There'll be a radio mic coming around later, so think of your favourite questions, and if I don't ask it, then it's down to you. I want to start, John, by asking about how 
you can be a winner on two wheels and on four. We've had other racing drivers going back to Nuvolari and before, who've raced bikes and then raced cars. You're the only man that actually got to the top in both disciplines. How different was the technique for you racing on two wheels and four? Were you using the same abilities or different ones? I think so. I think in those days we didn't have computers to come along and help us out so much. Uh, it was a case of where, you know, through the seat of your pants and the tip of your fingers and everything else, you related to a piece of machinery. And this meant that uh, you uh, created a close affinity with that machinery where it had to talk to you. And this is what happened in my very first race of mine, uh, which I won. Uh, it wasn't the first race, but the first race I won, which was on the Vincent, like a great flash. There it is. Uh, down there in Aberdeer, Wales. And on that day, suddenly, I came together. And it was talking to me. And that stood me in good stead. And so when uh, Reg Parnell and Tony Vanderbilt, when I was at a Sportsman of the Year contest, um, luncheon at the uh, end of uh, Mike Hawthorne, who was also on the table, his championship year, which was 1958, uh, uh, 58, 58, yeah. 1958, yeah. in Park Lane, uh, when uh, they asked me, they said, in fact, Mike asked me, John, um, ever tried a car? They stand up easier. <laughs> and, uh, and with that, Tony Vanderbilt piped up and said, if he drives a car, remember, Tony Vanderbilt had just retired from racing, if he drives a car, he's a motorcyclist, I'm a motorcyclist, he drives a van wall. Rich Parnell said, oh, didn't say much, but Rich Parnell a week later was on the phone saying, uh, can you come down to Goodwood? I've got a DBR1, the one Sterling won the uh, Nürburgring race with. We've got certain delicate things about it which uh, we want to recheck. What it was is David Brown, who of course was a gearbox manufacturer. And what wasn't known at the time is that they had fitted a Maserati gearbox in that car. And so this was so I went down and I tried it. First time I'd really seen a racing car. I'd uh, been so totally involved in two. Uh, I felt rather like DBR1, a fabulous car. It is quite nice. And then I stopped and he uh, said, oh, uh, John, formality, uh, can you sign this? I said, what's that? He said, a contract. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, 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 I'm a motorcyclist. <laughs> and so that's where it started. Uh, and, of course, uh, the next day, uh, that night, Tony Vanderbilt came on. I said, you've been testing for... He didn't have a high opinion of David Brown. Uh, so I won't say what he said. So he said, David York, 
He's getting the van walls out of mop balls and he's going to be at Goodwood, I think on Thursday it was. Be there. Why not? So I, I went along and there where I was, instead of sitting on top of a Norton, I was sitting behind four Nortons uh, because of course the engine had been built by the Norton engineers. Yeah. And so that's how I started. Well, just before we leave the motorcycling, I just want to take you back. Uh, you, of course, started with Vincent's, then you were with Norton's, but you switched to the Italian firm MV Augusta. I think you wanted to win with British machinery, but you decided that you needed an Italian machine to win the World Championship. Well, my first thoughts, Joe Craig, I had, uh, Joe Craig, a very famous person, who'd been the, the sort of person behind the, most of the Jeff Duke and the rest of them uh, in the later stages of development of Norton's, both just before the war and after. And uh, I spoke to him about this because he was going to retire. And in fact, I was very pleased to win his last race for him, which was at Silverstone, and managed to beat Jeff Duke, who was on the Jalera. <laughs> so that, that was rather a bonus for him and for me. But the next year, they had one or two different circuits they'd introduced. Uh, this is for uh, 56. And I thought, hmm, if we put a fairing on the Norton, it could be that we could compete. And I managed to drum up through a contact, uh, a bit of sponsorship from the news of the world. And I went to Norton's and said, can I have the works machines to do a world championship with? And the works machines and the Edwards brothers, who were the chief mechanic in the other, I said, and, uh, we can you know, pay something towards it, obviously. And Gilbert Smith said, I'm 30, so I'll have to put it to the board. He put it to the board, he said, I put it to the board. Yes, we agree with you. You could, we think, but we can't do it. If you won, you would earn more than a director of this company. <laughs> <laughs> Why did the British motorcycle industry die? <laughs> well, you had, obviously, enormous success with MV Augusta, won the world championship titles. Uh, I must just ask you about the Isle of Man TT, that extraordinary circuit. You won, I think, four senior TTs. You also won on a 350 as well. Yeah, three juniors. Yes. Yeah. So, just in a short paragraph, can you decide what it's like racing <coughs> flat out over that extraordinary track? and a half miles. Yeah. Um, of public road. Lifting your head up to miss lampposts. Uh, <laughs> making certain way you could put your wheels in the gutter, in the places you could put your wheels in the gutter to get more power on. Making certain where you didn't go into the gutter because there was a drain hole. <laughs> all these things uh, are all the skills you have to learn for something like that. Uh, mind you, one year I didn't envisage what I was going to have as a challenge, and that was in early morning practice. I came through uh, a section and came out up to a place called the schoolhouse, coming out of the wooded section, up a right hander, 
been pretty well out. And what was I confronted with? A cow came over the fence. <laughs> and my envy Augusta and everything breaks on we boom. You hit the cow. Hit the cow. Bike went down the road, cow rolled over. The cow got up. <laughs> Luckily I got up, but the bike had uh, shoveled up gravel into the carpet, etc. And uh, so I was left to use a spare bike for the race. But that was an experience in the army. One more motorcycle question I must ask you. I read somewhere that you won your final motorcycle victory only wearing one boot. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I suppose there's a double story there because it also links in to my winning the uh, Monza Grand Prix with the uh, Honda uh, in 1967. Yeah. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a four wheel Honda. Well, come on, dear. Four wheels, yeah. because very similar circumstances. Uh, what ha happened was that. Um, I came to the back straight and into uh, to come along and break for the last long curve, which is the um, I'm trying to remember the parabolica. Last, the parabolica. Parabolica. The parabolica. The end corner there, which is a, a long right hander. The first part starts and it widens out, and you sort of come in and then you let it drift out in order to drive down the straight and get the maximum speed down there. And uh, somebody had blown up and left oil and there hadn't been that much and I came down there and I suddenly had you know, a bit of a full lock I went into it and I lost the back end a full lock and the only thing was to drive into it and go over the grass in those days go over the grass and I sort of just about got it by and then turned it enough just to graze the bank but I hit the bank hard enough it actually tore my boot off <laughs> and so I ended up going to the start fight, finish line to win the race with one boot. Right. <laughs> a great way to end your two-wheel career. Now, you've mentioned your talks with Reg Parnell um, and with Tony Vanderbilt, uh, but in fact, your first Grand Prix were for Colin Chapman at Lotus, and you actually finished second in the British Grand Prix, your second ever Grand Prix. And we all thought at the time, I mean, I was sitting at the back of the fourth form maths lesson at the time, but I thought too, uh, that you were going to be the number one driver at Lotus in 1961. Yeah, there's a story there. <laughs> somehow you and Chapman failed to agree. Well, what went wrong there? No, no, we, we didn't really fall out. Um, no, I mean, it's what might have been in many ways, uh, because... We go along and uh, one of the things what got away was I could have taken Lotus their first ever Grand Prix win uh, with the Portuguese Grand Prix, uh, which I think was uh, either just after or just before just the, after, yeah. the British, British just Grand Prix, yeah. uh, because I had a 20 second, second lead. And um, I was still motorcycling. And so 
I wasn't a total car driver, you know, I was a part-time car driver, and I was still motorcycle. And, and the concentration which was required uh, was so much. And I came across Sterling, and Sterling had had a, a pit stop, and because I'd passed him early on before that, but when, when we had been at the start, but he had a pit stop, and I came across Sterling. And the worst thing I could do was to actually you know, be, follow somebody. I, I, I needed to do it all in my own way. I needed to sort of uh, be able to just concentrate. I didn't want to sort of be around someone. And so, long straight at um, a Porto, uh, which had tram lines in it, was um, went into a, a fairly sharp left-hander. And so I came up behind Sterling and going down there and I made the uh, judgment that before going round to the back and through those fast sweeps all down past the sardine factories, which you knew clearly, <laughs> knew where you were just by eating the car the smell. Uh, this was um, something which, I don't know, uh, and I made two mistakes. One, I decided to do it. Two, I didn't turn across the tram lines. Remember, we only had tyres about that wide, in fact, hard, hard enough, so I got a little bit stuck, which delayed the turning. With the delay of a turning, secondly, uh, when I went to brake a bit more, early on the saddle tank over the, over the top of the chassis, uh, aluminium tank sitting on uh, the uh, tubes of the chassis, had cracked and my boots and everything else were in, covered in petrol. And so uh, my foot slipped on the pedal a little bit. And so I lost the brakes for a minute and I went back onto them I should have, the first mistake I made was that, i.e. going across the tram lines. The second one, I should have just gone up the slip road and turned round. Instead, I went to turn round, I clipped the straw bell, and it knocked the water hose off. And that was the end of my first Grand Prix win. And it would have been Lotus's first. Uh, and Lotus's first. Yeah, and there we But uh, Colin came in at the end of the year and said, John, You're number one, and you've got choice of teammate. So I said to him, "Oh, he said, but you know, obviously you've got to stop motorcycling. You can't, you know, do all a year because I'd only been able to do odd races." Um, so I said, "Jimmy Clark." You, you wanted Jimmy Clark as yeah. your teammate? Yeah, I said, uh, uh, Jimmy. I've been racing against Jimmy and uh, I got on with Jimmy and everything else. And when I first did my test with Lotus, uh, I had a lot of uh, antiness from. Um, Innis Ireland. Pardon? From Innis. Innis Ireland. Innis. Yeah. From Innis. Uh, and. This, uh, he was rather upset about this, you know, amateur coming in 
because when I first tested the car, I'd gone there and I'd gone as fast as him in the car at Silverstone, but I'd also, at the end of the day, run it off into the bank. And he went, went berserk about, oh, we haven't got any parts and you get these amateurs drive cars, etc., etc. So that's it. Colin said, he's driving. Mind you, given this issue, when he went to the actual race and he hit one of the old drums on Woodcote Corner, which of course in those days at Silverstone, uh, you had the safety measures were uh, water-filled oil drums around the inside of the corner. <laughs> yeah, uh, d just to make sure you knew where the corner was and to make sure you didn't go off too far. Uh, uh, so he hit one of those and uh, he said, oh, well. <laughs> We all, we all do it, don't we? But um, when Colin asked me that, I gave it a reply. The next thing that happened was that, and I'd come in for a bit of stick from a, a lot of the establishment. The establishment who didn't really appreciate this newcomer coming in and being in this sort of top group. And, uh, and this sort of made me a bit sensitive. I, I was too sensitive here. Because the next thing is, uh, Innes was in France. And there was a phone call from Innes. Stealing his drive, everything else. So he said, no, I'm not getting involved in all this politics. Let's have a meeting. So we had a meeting with um, Colin. And Colin said, I fixed up Innes for you to drive for BRP, they're going to have the cars and etc. the same as we have and uh, everything else. Because Innes said, I've got a contract though and this and that. And so I, for, you know, uh, as I, think I was a bit too sensitive, I walked away. You know. I said, I don't want to know. I don't want to know about this. I walked away, and I didn't have a drive. Well, and you did, nevertheless. Stay, you you were in Formula One the next year with the Yeoman Credit Team, but I want to Reg Parnell, Reg Parnell again. Yeah. But I want to fast forward to 1963 because you were still, in motor racing terms, almost a new car. But Enzo Ferrari came after you, and you signed for what was the greatest motor racing team in the world, Ferrari. Now, what was it like working for, or working with Ferrari, and, and particularly Enzo Ferrari? We've got to remember there's two things happened in between, which are very important. One, um, he asked me um, the year earlier, and I'd gone out to Manello, and I'd seen him, and I'd seen Keaty, and I'd listened to what they were intending to do, and I saw all the list of drivers they had lined up, and I thought, where do I fit in uh, as such? Uh, and I'm not really, I've been with Italian teams before, and I know that to a degree, you needed to go there, with strength yeah. and, and being complete. I thought, I'm not complete enough. I'm, I'm not ready for this. So I turned it down. 
and I arranged for German credit to support the build of a new Formula One car, which was a Lola. And of course, I got seconds in the Grand Prix with a Lola, and we finished in front of Ferrari in the World Championship. And, but when I turned down Ferrari, they said, we do not ask twice. You are finished. But they did. They did. <laughs> and, of course, they were right to do so, because you brought them the World Championship in, in 1964. But, of course, you'd had a sample of Italian inter-team politics when you rode for MV Augusta and, and scored those World Championships for them. And you won the World Championship for Ferrari, but you did have to grapple with inter-team politics, didn't you? And in the end, you decided to walk away from Ferrari in the middle of a season because you didn't like the way you were being treated. In life, sometimes you look back on decisions you make and things that you make and you say, hmm, if perhaps I was as wise as now, anything else, uh, that decision back then in 1960 and that decision in 66 uh, might have been a little different. Um, by playing it differently, it would have been, but, you know, I wasn't a player, I was just straightforward and just loved my racing and didn't want all this sort of intrigue. No, uh, very difficult time for Ferrari developed because they had these various people fighting for the company. Ford, and on the other side you had Fiat. And the company, as Ferrari said, when I sort of met him to a contract, he said, uh, we, haven't, we haven't got much money, uh, but there are other advantages. Uh, those other advantages turned out to be staying at a four-star hotel for 1,700 lira a day, all in, which was just about a pound. <laughs> <laughs> and, going, and going around Modena, which is a lovely place, with nice shops and some fantastic restaurants, gastronomic centre a bit of Italy. And uh, if you walk in and say, ah, Pilotte Ferrari, Surtes, ah, Cinquanta per cento discount. Yeah, 50% discount. <laughs> just to interrupt on, on this particular, I remember you, you were able, while you drove a Ferrari, to drive around on the road to the most wonderful Ferrari 330 GT. But then they sent you a bill. What? They sent you a bill for your road going Ferrari. Oh, no, when I turned up. Yeah, I turned up in my 507 BMW, <laughs> you know, which I'd had. <laughs> and the old man turned around and said, Magna Tedesco! Ferrari! <laughs> so I thought I'd been given one, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love the look of a Lusso, but uh, then you could travel in the races and you had to put all your luggage in. So the GT looked to be the, uh, the practical answer. So I spoke to Speak to Casa, so I spoke to Casa, who was a basically accountant and secretary, and said, 
Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll fix you up one. And um, when I come to get a payment, what did I find? <laughs> that invoice be at trade price. <laughs> Incidentally, the strange little twist to that, I had a text from somewhere, someone this week saying, I found your Ferrari 330GT without engine and gearbox, which Mr. Ferrari gave you. <laughs> yeah. I had to remind, I had to point out to him it hadn't. It seems to me that whatever team you went to in Formula One, your concentration on trying to get everything right, to develop the car so that you had the raw materials that you needed to win the race. It was that that often um, brought you difficulties with the people who thought it was their job. You, you went into Ferrari and said, if we're going to win races, the car has got to be like that. And Dragoni, for one, uh, didn't like that. He didn't like the fact that no, his no, drivers no, weren't doing as they Dragoni, were Dragoni was another person. He was a, a perfume manufacturer, uh, as such. Matter of fact, stink in his job there, I think, uh, and and the main thing is he had good connections at Fiat, which is one of the things. He didn't know anything about motor racing really, although they had uh, a he had a sort of interest in a private team, and uh, he was a political party who played games, which there's no place for. Uh, so, um, it's different. Now, when I went there, I just, I mean, I was still learning. And I just went there and I, my first job was being given, was being given uh, the new prototype car. Uh, the prototype car had been a V6 rear engine car, which had been used in the previous year. Uh, 1962, uh, and it chopped the back chassis and then fitted a V12 in. And uh, it was my job, so I went to Modena and uh, I just went round and round and round Modena with Fantucci, the panel beater there, beating the thing around as we put oil on it and wool tufts to do our aerodynamic testing uh, to get the cars ready for Sebring. And so we worked like hell to get that, those cars going and get, get it working nice. It, 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 it was sort of a, a, nice, a nice little car. And uh, there was going to be about four I had to go to the race. There was one which was the last one off, which we couldn't, uh, didn't have time to test. But Ludovico Scaffiotti, who I was going to drive with, and myself, we sort, we'd said, oh, we're having this one, and we sorted it out. We get to Sebring, and uh, one of the cars is given to um, the, old, the American uh, team, Mr. Canetti, Mr. Canetti, for Rodriguez to drive. And uh, is it, this is your car? I said, no, it's not. Yes, uh, you've done all the testing, so you know the cars best. This hasn't had much testing, so 
you better drive it. Ah, first problem. Then, of course, we go along, so I speak a little bit. I was going to walk out a little bit and say, please don't, please don't. I nearly walked out then, but please don't. So I, I, I didn't. I said, no, we'll make it work. Well, in the race, uh, we both suffered severe sickness because the bonnet, uh, on the rear engine, but the bonnet lifted because it hadn't been given the, uh, fitted with the other attachments, the ceiling, and the fumes came over into the cockpit. Came over to the cockpit and we were getting as sick as dogs. And we went along and uh, we went through the race, but we persevered and we won the race. And uh, promptly sick, the ladies were up there on the, on, on the, on the podium up there, and we there and uh, arms around and everything else. We had to break away from the podium and go around the back to be sick. <laughs> and then we had a blow, protest. You haven't won the race. Ah, and who had protested? Mr. Dragoni. <laughs> he said that Rodriguez had won it. Luckily, uh, my wife was a fantastic timekeeper and lap charter. And she sat there for the whole period and taken the whole chart. 12 hour race. Yeah. And this <laughs> coincided with the organizers one. So the protest got thrown out. But it was purely a case of where he was trying to put his authority on a new boy. Because I think one of the fears of some of the people was that Fry was very fond of people who have been associated with motorcycles. And so he rather sort of, I mean, rather got a quite a nice little uh, rapport going. And so, um, and I think these people resented this. They were jealous. Yeah, they resented this and they thought, we've got to, we've got to make sure we say what we're doing. So that's a situation there. Now we're going to come on to Honda, uh, the, your Formula One time with Honda in a moment, but I just want to move sideways slightly to go into the Can-Am series. You were, while you were racing in Formula One, you were also, of course, doing uh, the big North American sports racing cars, the Can-Am cars. You won the first Can-Am series uh, with a Lola in your Team Surtees colours. But then the next year, you had a really dreadful accident which nearly killed you and very nearly certainly spelt the end of your career. Tell us about that accident. Well, of course, the Lola thing came about partly because of Ferrari. Uh, I had a very good relationship with uh, er Eric, of course, but at Ferrari I was trying to get them to drum up. One of the problems was that here in Great Britain we were developing all these new <coughs> teams and the teams were piggybacking and they were taking advances all the time. And on top of that, those teams had available to them the Coventry Climax <coughs> engines. And the Coventry Climax engines were some of the first ones which actually had mid-range power. 
and so it was able to make the cars work better and more drivable. And so um, it, it was a formidable opposition, and they had to come along, whereas in Italy, there was nobody. Maserati was, um, you know, only dabbling with things. Uh, they didn't really have much to do at that stage. And uh, Lancia, of course, had stopped. So there was just fry. And I said, you've got to get a new technology. So I went to Lola's and I got the first of the uh, fiberglass bodywork at Fry's by taking uh, specialized moldings out to Italy to set up to produce fiberglass bodywork, the same as they did for the Lola's. But to move you on to the 67 accident, that, that's what I wanted to get to with, with the T70, yeah. because that's such a dramatic story. Well, yes, uh, that um, is a dramatic story, unfortunately. Um, I got permission, although certain people said that, I got permission from Enzo. I said, look, I've got to keep in touch with other advances other than what you have here. I think we need to keep in touch with the English scene. And I'd like to work with Lola. He said, as long as you do not enter cars under, with another manufacturer, only under your <coughs> name. And that's how Team Certes was born. Well, we get to, um, of course, uh, 65, uh, when this happened, and uh, I had, and, and the Can-Am was not really starting then, the Can-Am started the following year, right? Uh, and we were doing it some American races and Canadian races as well as English, and I'd gone out and I'd won in England at uh, Silverstone and, and uh, I think Old Park. And uh, then Colin, uh, um, Eric Broadley said, the American agent said, could you take two cars? Could you enter two cars? So I said, oh, well, yes. I think so. Can you build a second car? Yes. So the car was ready just before the Guards Trophy at Brands Hatch. And so, I said, who are we going to get to drive it? He said, oh, Jackie Stewart. So I rang up Jackie and I said, you drive this. So after some haggling, he said he would, and he got permission from BRM because he was there. And I said to him, I said, look, you take my car. It's a winning car. This other car is going to be last minute not tested, so it's far better I take it. And they're both the same, I take it. Well, as it worked was, we got the car nicely sorted in practice, and I won the race. And um, that was that. Well, the following week, there was Mossport. After the race, Jackie pronounced to me, I want that car. So what? have that car. So I gave him that car. And we went off. 
But in practice, he hadn't been very happy with it. And so I said, right, I'll take it out. So I took it out. And I don't frankly know. But I know because of what, what I've told. What happened was that uh, I came round the final right-hand corner. There's a straight, a uh, short straight in front of the pits before it drops away into another long right-hander. As I went along to go into that right-hander after the pits, the car went off the track. Uh, somersault in the air and came down on me. And um, I was here and I was taken into Scarborough General Hospital in, in uh, Toronto and uh, I think I woke up a couple days later uh, because I'd had a, a ruptured kidney and I'd been smashed, the bottom of my spine, uh, spine had been broken and my pelvis, uh, in fact, it was four and a half inches pushed up this side. And um, the old doctor came in and said uh, uh, about, about what had happened and the rest of it. And uh, so that um, was there. And, Rod Rushbrook, uh, uh, Lola, yeah. uh, well, he was the one in charge of building the cars and everything else, came into the hospital and he said, John, uh, I'm so sorry. I said, what happened? He said, I'm so sorry. It's our, our fault. What happened? is that the American distributor was wanting to reduce the price of the cars by getting parts made in America. They had sent a set of parts to England for testing and evaluation. Unfortunately, some uprights, front suspension uprights, and magnesium castings, where the core had moved, and so they were a bit wafer thin, instead of being left there for testing, got picked up and put onto the, onto the new car which was built. And so it shattered and that's why the car went off. But the old team came back because when, uh, in a way, uh, it all turns around. Once I was stabilised here, the old doctor, the old specialist came along and said, we're not capable of really dealing with you here, uh, with your problems, because your sort of uh, physical problems are something which it's either England or America. Well, Tony Vanderbilt flew out, and he came to see me, and he said, "Sterling St. Thomas's experiences, St. Thomas's, Mr. Urquhart." Get him on the phone. So he got Mr. Urquhart on the phone at St. Thomas's Hospital and he explained the situation to him. And uh, Mr. Urquhart said, 
don't let those Americans get their hands on it. They use a knife. Get him back here. So he booked, booked out a uh, British Overseas Airways plane, front seats. I was mummified onto a stretcher, so I didn't move too much. And I was carried on and lifted and put on the front seats and flown back to England, St. Thomas's. And so that was where I came. And you were racing again five months later? Well, um, what happened, another little bit of story there, was that Ms. Um, Urquhart came in uh, one day and said, we've got to get you straight. He said, uh, you see my registrar? Big lad, isn't he? Plays rugby. He said, uh, we're going to take you downstairs into the cellars, put you on a table, he said, he's going to get one end. <laughs> I'm going to get the other. He said, we're going to tug like hell and we'll get you near. <laughs> and so they got me to, I think, three-eighths of an inch. Back. Yeah. Fantastic. Extraordinary. Now, there's so much more we could talk about, John, but I am going to now move you forward to your time with Honda. Honda had never been in four-wheel racing before certainly on, on an international basis, except, except they had the Richie Ginther car, yeah. that's quite right. Nice to have you put me right, I'm sorry about that. You've got to get it right. But their big push in Formula One was in 1967. They came to you to do it, and they said, we can't do it in Japan, it's too far away, we want to do it here in England. So you were pretty much put in charge, not only of driving the car, but also overseeing the whole project. It was actually a bit of a familiar story, a bit like Mr. Augusto. And Enzo Ferrari. And in some ways, there's very similarities with Mr. Honda. Um, it came about because, you know, I, I could have so easily had the championship in 1966, having started off in one with Ferrari, uh, we were right in there with the Cooper Maserati, uh, working um, with my old teammate, Roy Salvador, who was team manager. Uh, we got the Cooper Maserati, despite looking a cumbersome car, to be a very drivable car. And uh, it was only stupid things which cost us a championship. Uh, a bank tank, um, Peter Arundel coming out the pits uh, of um, at uh, the uh, American Grand Prix and T-boning me when I'm sitting there in a nice position that lost us the championship. But the last race, we got it right, and I won the Mexican Grand Prix. Indeed, yeah. Mr. Nakamura, the team manager, came along and said, John. Honda will be out of racing unless you join us. And he um, said, uh, We need someone like you, but also you had the team, so you can probably help us with some facilities because we've got to have facilities in England. So I thought, Well, the old motorcycling background, I must say, appealed. 
uh, thinking about uh, if I could do it on a motorcycle, and I've been very impressed by a little one and a half litre. I thought the three litre looked a bit of a heavy, clumbersome boot, but just the same, I thought, oh, Honda should be able to turn their mind to it. And I was, in a way, a bit homeless. I'd been looking to be part of a family. And at Ferrari, I started, in fact, I was just furnishing the flat that Enzo had asked me to move into uh, because he wanted me to spend more time in Italy when I left them. So, uh, I, in a way, I wanted a family again and uh, be back and be, feel part of it. So I thought about it. I spoke to Roy. He said, oh, well, we're not sure. We're continuing. Maserati may not do any development work. So I flew out to Japan and uh, went there and they said, we'd like to do this and do that. Uh, and we'd like you to um, you know, tell us a few things. So they had a blackboard. They had a blackboard there and the rest they said, uh, yeah, uh, when you went to the, Ma when you, uh, they picked up on me, see, when you uh, went to Cuba Maserati, you made geometry changes with, uh, uh, there uh, on the car, which showed up and things like this. What about it? You said, what do you mean, go get the chalk up and start <laughs> riding on the board? Is it R&D? So, uh, a new experience. Yeah. I hadn't realised that just like Ferrari, they were going to come under such pressure financially. Really? And the budgets would be so cut. So, then Mr Nakamura said, John, can you help us get any sponsorship? So it ended up, I started being driver, trying to find bits of sponsorship for them and also organising the team. But we, it was very good. And what's nice is that during my time, uh, engineers we worked with uh, all became presidents of Honda mm. afterwards. Uh, and uh, Kume, yeah. Kawamoto yeah. uh, had been apart from Mr. Honda, the great names of Honda yeah. during their successful years. And what was so nice also was that when they won a Brands Hatch with, I uh, think, Mansell, yeah. uh, uh, Kume sent me, who was president, sent me a note those years later saying, John, this wouldn't have been possible without you. Yeah. Now, we could continue for hours because we haven't even got on to I've talked too long. You as the manufacturer. Well it's not so much perhaps I've talked too long because yeah. I know that there are people in the room who would like to ask John some of the questions that I've got queuing up to ask. So somewhere Steve has a radio microphone and he's he, he's he's very quick on his feet. So if you'd like to wave an arm, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got a, uh, a question um, and there's right. somebody okay. right there, and we're going to make a phone to you, and you can ask our question. Yes, sir. Testing, testing. John, um, can we go back to Vincent and the Great Flash, which I, I used to watch from that corner of Brands, um, and my father took me there because I think he did some of the uh, engine machining for 
um, for your father. So um, that's the first time I've got close to it, and the engineering is absolutely immaculate on it. The, was that all done in the back of the shop at Forest Hill? And how many people worked on it? No, no. was it all done at Forest no, Hill? No one. Um, this is not all the original bike. This is part of it, because by the time I finished with Vincent's, I had quite an accumulation of parts, particularly working there and getting the support of Mr. Ferrari, uh, Mr. Vincent. Uh, um, um, the history of the original bike was that it was a test bike, which was in black, but it was a great flash specification, which had been given to Kings of Oxford, uh, which was the very, the largest motorcycle dealer in England, run by Mike Howard's father. And uh, it was lying there, and I just, I'd had a Conrad go through the crankcase of my 250 Triumph, dropping me on my backside on uh, uh, Abbey Curve at Silverstone. And so that was the end of that. And we were down there, and uh, so we said, about uh, trying one of these. And there was this bunch of bits in a corner, and uh, Dad spoke to Mr. Vincent, he came along and said, yeah, we support him, and he can also try one of our new big ends, which was a plain bearing big end, an aluminium sleeve going in, and the rod working straight on it. Try one of our new big ends as well. So, have it. So, it was given to me. It was not given to me, it was bought it. I, uh, my dad put it on higher purchase, and uh, because I was on £2.50 a week. <laughs> £2.10, I should say. £2.10 uh, a week. Um, and living on Welsh Rabbit. <laughs> In between the days that I didn't go home. But I would use a road test machine to travel home, uh, which was just in a place called Addington, Old Addington. It was, uh, nowadays, it would probably take me three, four hours. It used to take me an hour uh, to nip home because, of course, there was no traffic and there were no speed limits. And the old Vincent twins and that were quite quick. <laughs> and so uh, that was it. Go home and I'd work into this little late hours and whistle off the next morning. And so I prepared them and we'd stick them into Dad's van and go off to a race meet at the weekend. But um, I carried on, I drilled a, f a few more holes and did a few other bits and pieces to it. And uh, it was, yeah. And there it is. Yeah. And that one, that one I rebuilt when I had to close my Formula One team at, uh, uh, because the sponsor reneged on us at the end of uh, 1978, I was so disgusted that I just turned my back on four wheels <coughs> for a while. Uh, and I turned back to my first love, motorcycles. And I went scavenging around all the bits that I still had from both myself and from my dad and the rest of it because um, in those days, when you sort of finish the season, the, the, the material didn't have much value afterwards. And so 
I'd have had it around and it had been stuck away in boxes and I got it all out and I started to build it. And in fact, I'm still building uh, one or two of the Nortons uh, that I got parts for. Right, we're going to ask for another question. Yeah, there's one right over there. I'd just like to ask you to throw a little bit of light on why the style of motorcycle racers in your time in the 50s and Jeff Duke, always they said how neat riders were. The best riders were always commended for their neatness. You watch racers today and they're hardly on the bike. What are, what are the reasons for that? A uh, number of things. Uh, in in my time with MV, um, there was quite a lot of development going on in the 50s in the rivalry between Avon and Dunlops. And you start to have high hysteresis compounds come in. And these were doing grips, and so you meant you got more angle, more angle. One of the things is the MV was very wide, the engine, a bigger engine than the Genera, and so it started to grind on the road. So one of the things I first started to do was to shift my weight, which was just in fact my, my bottom, over to one side. And so I accredited with starting a bit of that side, but not sticking my knee down. Um, I hope no one's picked up on that uh, photograph which is out there, which they put on certain people's websites which goes along and shows a Vincent uh, with a person on it. Uh, I can't imagine how bad they look. I, I can't imagine how, in fact, they can ride a bike that way, to, hanging totally off it with their knee on the ground and everything else, and looking a right mess, and they actually put my name to it. <laughs> <laughs> So that was it. What happened is that largely it has been this development came about by trying to keep a bigger patch of the tyre on the road. So you keep a bigger contact patch on the road. So you shift your weight and then took this to extremes. But if you notice, the real stars, although they sort of get down, they don't look too ungainly. It's the people who try and copy them which looks so ungainly. Yeah. But now, of course, you've got a whole different world in motorcycling. Whereas, my time, you'd be out there and on the edge, and you'd be starting to move away, and you'd get drifting, and you'd be controlling it on your right hand, and when it started to move it, you'd be easing off. Now, of course, you're done. You go along, and you wind the throttle up, and let the computer take over. Yeah. <laughs> Can we have another question? Yes, sir, right there. In the middle. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I didn't hear that too clear. The, the, what was the, the favourite car of all the cars you raced? 
And I think the, the subsidiary question was, what are you driving now? Oh. <laughs> My favorite car, I think, I think all the cars and bikes that I rode, uh, you create that relationship with. So you have a sort of relationship with all of them, and you have your highs and your lows. Um, I must say that I have a great affection uh, in a way for that first Formula One car I, I sat in and um, race uh, <coughs> and actually race with Colin. I like Colin. Uh, it's a character a bit, a bit uh, difficult perhaps in some ways, but I like Colin and of course a brilliant man. And that Lotus 18 uh, may have been a bit fragile and everything else, but it was a fantastic motor car. Uh, then you come along and the P flies, the P cars, uh, they which you, uh, I drove at the Seabrings and Nürburgrings, the Monsters and Spas and places, they were, they were really drivable cars. And they were the those, old, those were the sports racing for us. Sports racing yeah. cars. These were the prototypes. Sure. Those ones there. Uh, you went along and uh, Nürburgring, you'd go along a flute platch and you'd come along you'd go, and take off and you'd be pretty sure you'd get them down straight <laughs> and the rest of it. And it, it they, were, they, they, they were good cars to drive. They gave a lot of pressure. I think also the car on your right, right here, has a particular place in your heart. This is the Formula 2 Surtees, ladies and gentlemen, and if you didn't look at it coming in, take a close look at it as you leave, because that is a Formula 2 Surtees which has played an important role in your life. Well, yes, I can say that. So each of the cars there, and of course I had the 64 Ferrari owner, which obviously has to be a special because I've got my championship in it. Uh, and things. Um, I regret saw the 68 Honda, you know, apart from the stupidity of things, a bit like, uh, which was often pure mistakes on the parts of people who were experienced. Uh, again, we had the opportunity of bringing the first world championship to Honda because the car actually uh, worked very well despite its weight. But back to the former two, uh, I brought that along uh, purposely uh, tonight because you got there the start really of my career, which is Vincent, and you got the end of my motorcycle career, which is the end of Worcester, and uh, you've got basically uh, the end of my car career, uh, which was when I was running my team acting as driver, but also, but mainly for test purposes. And we built the Formula 2 car for the first year in 72, and got Matchbox uh, sponsorship. Uh, competing against a certain Ron Dennis, which was rather nice. I, I was sitting down there when he came down the steps from the office, having had his interview first. Uh, <laughs> at um, Matchbox 
And so we got their support and we built that little car with uh, half forward engines. What was good about the year was that Mike Howard came along and won the European <coughs> Championship. Uh, I won the Gold Cup with that car uh, at Imola, with that particular car, and also with that particular car, the first Japanese Grand Prix that was held was at Mount Fuji. Uh, and uh, that was very pleasing. Other something which is particularly special for me is it is the only car that my son drove of our manufacturer. Uh, and he drove it one week before he was killed and uh, set up a time going up Goodwood Hill, uh, which uh, if the times had been announced, because they, they didn't uh, show them that I had data system on the car, uh, would have put him up somewhere in the front of the Formula Ones. So it's, it's very special. And the little team there, and uh, Mike and the rest of it was good. Wonderful that you brought it. Can we have another question, please? Yes, there's one right over there. Yes, sir. Can we get a microphone to you? If not, why don't you just stand up and shout? <laughs> I think you can probably hear. I'll try to shout. Can you hear me? Uh, Here comes the microphone. John, my favourite sports car from the mid-60s was your old red uh, Lola T70. Um, I think it's still around, and I saw it at, or one that was at least a replica of it at uh, Goodwood members meeting a couple of months ago. Apart from the obvious exception of your crash, how much fun was that car to drive? The Lola? Yeah. It was, it was partly my baby, because we're together with um, Eric and uh, Rob Rushbrook, and the little team at Lola, you know, they came along and took it. Um, and uh, I went to Traco and got Chevrolet, some she uh, iron block at that time, uh, Chevrolet engines, and uh, put it together and went out and tested it. Uh, so, no, it, 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 great cars to drive. Uh, you, you could, uh, and very quick, of course. Great cars to drive, and um, something which, um, okay, the accident, but the accident was a series of things. And the main thing was, Rob Rushbrook did the most important thing, because I don't know whether I would have come back to racing unless I could have answered the question of why that accident took place. And that was the most thing, because then, I was quite confident it wasn't me. And so I was able to sort of go in, because you could, when you're driving, you've got to be totally free of mind and uh, able to do that 10 tenths and 11 tenths when it's required without having any wobbles. <coughs> but no, the little team of uh, Eric, and when you mentioned about uh, the, the Monza race, um, I gave a sort of a little push, and I was helped by Mr. Kawamoto uh, and by uh, Nakamura. Uh, I said, look, we've got this hellish weight engine in this car. We can't go along giving away 180 pounds all the time. We've got to try and do something. 
uh, let's save some money. Uh, some we were estimating we could save perhaps 80 pounds or so. And uh, I had before my test, uh, before my crash, I had tested a car, an Indy car, a Lola Indy car, at Indianapolis. We were viewed to drive in Indianapolis. And I tested the car, and uh, <coughs> that car uh, was tested. While I was in hospital in Canada, uh, the Honda agent, Beacon, said, John, who can drive this car? So I said, try Graham Hill. Well, Graham won the Indianapolis with it. And it was that which I had the idea of going to Eric and saying, Eric, can't we use the basis of the Indy car to put his engine in? And so suddenly we put Japan and England together, and it was one of the first sort of joint efforts in motorsport. And uh, they sent the engineers over, all the machine bits were all made in Japan, and the rest of it, they all came together, and I think we finished it uh, just a week of going to Monza. And it won its first race. And it won its first race. Absolutely. We all used to call it the Hondola, because That's right. although it was a Honda, it was a Lola as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Let's have another question. In the green t-shirt right there. Oh, we're over there. Right. John, you touched on uh, your, uh, the political situation that existed at Ferrari, in which I think ultimately ended in you leaving the team. Uh, but there was a problem, I believe, in late 64 with uh, Mr. Ferrari and his own government, possibly, I don't know. But the Ferrari cars were taken away from their traditional red and raced in the NRT, NART colours of uh, North American racing team for a while. What was the story behind that? It's the only time they ever changed the colour of the cars. Well, the car's back in red again now because that's how you would have seen it if anybody was here for our event last year when I took it around the circuit uh, on our sort of little demonstration at our karting event. More of that later. Absolutely. Um, uh, Ferrari had tried to um, get, I think, the LM homologated, and he was very upset uh, with the Federation, Italian Federation, uh, that he hadn't succeeded, he hadn't done the number, and that they hadn't been able to, uh, shall we say, juggle the figures. And so he got very upset and he said, I'm no longer Italian. <laughs> we're, we're not Italian anymore. Uh, we're an American team. And so he painted the cars blue and white. <laughs> and uh, we went off to the last two races, which was uh, American Grand Prix and, the, uh, uh, and Mexico. Uh, with the cars in blue and white. So, uh, and then having yeah, made a fly, his a fly needs to be made. <laughs> Absolutely. And then by the time the next season started, it was all forgotten. 
But I think that the, the LM was actually allowed to race. I mean, he won, he won that little battle. Yeah. 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 Right. Who wants to ask a question? You're the man with the microphone. You better decide who asks the question. If if Honda hadn't approached you, would you have approached them? Pardon? If Honda, the people from Honda, had approached you about racing, would you have, would you have yourself approached Honda? If Honda hadn't approached you. Would you have approached Honda? Well, I just won. I just won the Mexican Grand Prix. Uh, I was, you know, it was all sort of dropped on me a bit early. I would have probably gone back and started to think what to do. Um, yes, I might have done thinking the same thing, but I might have gone to Colin Chapman and said, Colin. Let's forget the past. <laughs> yeah, that might have been another thing. I thought about that. But you always did like challenge, didn't you? I mean, the challenge of actually taking an inexperienced team, a team that came from the other side of the world, a team that didn't yet really understand Formula One, and you did pick them up, and you won the Italian Grand Prix with them. An awful, an awful lot of that wasn't just driving the car, it was making the whole thing work. Well, it's my life, you know, and uh, I love being sort of involved and working with the people, uh, etc. And what's quite nice is that, um, you know, I still have uh, you know, excellent relationships uh, with everybody I ever drove with, yeah, uh, etc. So, that's, uh, that's quite good. And um, it's, um, yes, it was a challenge. Sometimes, if I was looking at it purely from a point of view of John Surtees racing driver, um, I should have perhaps been more focused and been a bit more like a a Senna or a Stewart and just sat my bum in the best car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, perhaps from that point of view, I should have done that. Maybe. But on the other hand, I probably wouldn't have worked with so many interesting people yeah. and had quite a lot of fun doing it. Well done. That's a great way to put it. Can we have another question? <coughs> Firstly, John, thank you very much for a wonderful evening. And uh, two-part question, a little bit naughty, I know. Um, one from your time at Henry Augusta, so whether you've got any scurrilous stories from uh, whether they actually stopped the produ production lines of the helicopters to build the motorcycles or anything interesting from that era of your career. And then at uh, the other end of your career, uh, a little bit about uh, an, an, an interesting sponsor that you acquired that I think the BBC objected to. Oh, yes. <laughs> I knew we were going to get to that. <laughs> if I deal with the last one, of course, there was two occasions that I upset them. And one, I suppose, is um, very topical uh, because we just had an election. And once, um, I upset them and they wouldn't televise uh, 
uh, unless I took it off. Uh, when I put on the car, having been requested by Geoffrey Howe, who became the Chancellor Exchequer, but was our MP, our MP, and I had my racing team. And at weekends, and going out to Grand Prix at times, the lads would sit at borders, waiting with carnage to be stamped, you know, for hours on end. You know, virtually a day would be lost uh, travelling to a race in Europe. And travelling was a bit of a nightmare sometimes on borders. And when, he's turned, uh, when he came along and said to me, John, I want you to help me to get more exposure to taking Britain in Europe. He said, it's, it's not political, it's purely a trade arrangement where we were free trade between everybody. And I thought it was a wonderful idea. So I put it on, take Britain in Europe, and they came on and they wanted to stop the Canadian Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I had to take it off. But, no, uh, a small family car. That's right, great. great you've got to remember, you've got to remember that uh, our success there was that won the Advertising Award of the Year. <laughs> the Formula One car, a uh, single seater, with the small family one uh, Formula One car underneath. Uh, wonderful. Well, I think you're going to have to explain to some of the people in the audience whose memories may not go back what was the product that was written on the side of the car. <laughs> I mean, the product, I'll get on, the biggest customer for, of the product was actually the British government. <laughs> because the British government tended to send it around the world in, in aid. And uh, people who have been long-standing in motorsport will remember a name called Barry Gill. Yes. Barry Gill, in fact, was in the firm which did the PR for the London Rubber Company. And um, he uh, organised things, but uh, when they sort of approached us, and this was uh, a project which is called Durex, as such, uh, and nowadays it's gone, but at that time perhaps you wouldn't be able to say it in hush words. Um, so it's a bit controversial. I said, okay, but I'm not going to be involved in things which are distasteful. I'm gonna, it's got to be a decent presentation. I don't want sort of the, the whole thing being dragged down. So he said, no, no. And I must say, they, they, were, they were wonderful from that point of view. Their presentation and the way they uh, did everything was, was very good. It did cause a bit of controversy. And when we went to Brands Hatch to start with, they said, no, it's all out. Uh, but then we sm smoothed the waters. Well, the car race, but as I remember it, the BBC, at the last minute, refused to televise it. That's because right. they said there was advertising for a contraceptive on one yeah. of the cars. That's it. That's it. But one of the things was, what was interesting <coughs> is that Barry came along with a list. And um, we're talking about 19... Um, 76. 76, okay. Was it six? Oh, yeah, six. Uh, came along with a list. 
And is it right? We want to get questions asked, asked in Parliament. Here's a list of the people <laughs> who will ask questions in Parliament for us. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Right, we'd like another question, please, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> the initial spark that got you interested in motorcycle racing and in engineering? Um, the first, uh, I suppose, something which really got me a little bit emotionally involved was we were bombed out. My father had been called away by the editor of the motorcycling, Graham Walker, the father of Murray Walker, to volunteer to go in to train dispatch riders and uh, work organise the workshops at Catterick in Yorkshire. And uh, so we, he closed his business up and we we moved into a house uh, just in Shirley and a bomb dropped in the front garden uh, when my mother was with my sister and she just given birth. And so we were evacuated up to Yorkshire by him. And with us went some tea chests and in those tea chests were all his magazines and things. And one of the top magazines was of the 1939 TT. And it was a picture of a rider called George Meyer, who of course also drove a car. George Meyer winning the 1939 TT, standing on the footrest of a compressor BMW going down Bray Hill with the wheels off the ground. And as a, then I would have been, uh, because we're talking about um, five years old, and it made quite an impression on me. And a big enough impression that many years later I searched around having heard a glimmer and found that bike in America. And bought it. And bought it, restored it, rode it round to New Zealand, Australia, and everything else until BMW came on to me and said, We haven't got it. We haven't got one. <laughs> Can you please let us have it? And um, I thought, well, if it's going to go anywhere, it will go home. Yeah. And uh, we had racing programs to finance, so <laughs> it all fitted in. It all fitted in. <laughs> so I can borrow it back. <coughs> now I, I'm getting so um, that's that, that's that part of it. So uh, that came on, but I suppose. Um, was largely started by Dad coming home one day after he'd come out of the army and had set up his business and one day and saying, Lad, there's a box for you. And it was another tea box, in fact a couple of them, 
and it was a Liv Blackburn Speedway bike in bits. I didn't know what it was. He said, put it together, lad, and he would ride it. And uh, so, I suppose that's where it all started. I'm getting signals from Steve, sadly, because we could quite happily sit here until 2 o'clock tomorrow morning, but I could, and I think perhaps you could as well. We're going to run out of time any moment, but just before I hand back to Steve, I do want, at John's request, to remind everyone about, and remind, but maybe you don't even know about it, in which case you're hearing about it for the first time, the two-hour karting endurance team race which is going to take place here at Brooklands in just over six weeks' time. Now, we're all familiar with the cruel tragedy that befell John and his family in July 2009, which cost the life of Henry, who was set to become one of the brightest motor racing stars of his generation. Now, John masterminded the Henry Surtees Foundation, which has been doing such wonderful work for young people over the past six years. And of course, proceeds from this evening will go to the foundation. But among one of, one of the special events which John has created on behalf of the foundation is the Henry Surtees Team Karting Challenge, which is now in its third year. It's organized here at Brooklands with the help of the Brooklands Museum and of Mercedes-Benz World. Look at your diaries. It happens on Tuesday, June the 30th. And John tells me there are still a few places left for the two-hour team race. All you have to do is you have to put together a team of four people and you'll be able to battle it out here on the kart circuit in D-Max Burrell Karts. Not just that, there'll be a great party here which is being hosted by Steve Ryder. All the wonderful museum cars and facilities of uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, Mercedes World to enjoy. Bonhams are going to run an auction. And, John's very proud of this, in the interval, you'll be able to watch another former world champion, Damon Hill, who will be demonstrating the ex-Jim Clark Tasman Series winning Lotus Climax. Derek Bell, in the first Surtees TS7 Formula One car, and John himself doesn't want to be left out, so he is going to demonstrate that car that we've been talking about, which uh, John took to his two final victories at Mount Fuji and Imola. It's a special day. It's for a special cause. All you have to do is get together a team of four people, and you could be battling for the lead in the two-hour team challenge. So that's enough from me. From me. I'm going to hand back I'll to I'm just going to say one more word on yeah, that. Yeah, go on, John. Uh, yeah, there's also, if, if it's done as a compete in it, uh, there's also uh, the fact that you can come along and you can buy tickets to the champagne reception. Champagne, mum, which is, uh, as I told Bernie when he sort of supported us with it, I said, yes, it's going to be drunk, not sprayed. <laughs> <laughs> Mum champagne and um, and um, bowl food, etc. And I say there's going to be an assortment. Uh, Damon, of course, is following on from his father having driven for Lotus, and uh, Derek Bell won his only ever world championship points in a tier seven. So that's why we united him. And I'm going to put a couple up and young, uh, up and coming youngsters in two Formula cars 
including a mark, uh, including not a mark, uh, including a sponsored car, uh, which was referred to earlier. <laughs> a small family car. A small family car. Excellent, excellent. John, thank you so much, but I think we're going to let Steve just wind up the, uh, the evening. But before I hand back to Steve, what an extraordinary hour and a half we've had. Can I have a big hand, ladies and gentlemen?